every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd, he's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey everyone, welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I am your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is Tom Manchester, the owner of Electro Sound Systems. Over 15 years ago, Tom set out trying to make his stereo system bigger and louder than all of his friends. Little did he know that that desire would one day lead to his company owning 203 microphones, 7.2 miles of cable, and 126 speakers, as well as being the audio engineer for the President of the United States. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Tom today to to discuss that evolution. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, great. So, well, per usual, I'm going to be trying a beer I haven't had before. I'm trying a beer from Vermont called Conehead. And um, I know you won't be uh, you won't be partaking since you are still on the clock. Um, <laughs> what, what is your typical drink of choice? Uh, this is this coffee cup here represents my well, I guess it represents two symbolic drinks of choice. The first is just straight up coffee. I live yeah, on that. Of course. Um, and in my downtime, if I actually have that, it's usually a nice classic Jack and Coke. Oh, uh, nice. Love Coca-Cola. Throw a little Jack Daniels in there. It's delicious. You can't beat that. That's for yep. sure. Yeah, great. All right, well, well, let's get started. So first, just tell us a little bit about your business. Sure. Um, we have always been here in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, I started my business uh, shortly after graduating college in 2009. Um, really, this is kind of the, the evolution of a lot of little small jobs here and there that eventually turned into a full-time business. Up until the pandemic, we're servicing at least a couple hundred events a year. Um, you name it, ranging anything from private birthday parties all the way up to full-blown business conventions. Um, anywhere you can think that somebody, one person would need to address a large audience, we were there. So, uh, yeah, you know, that that obviously evolved. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah, definitely. So mm-hmm. you go to the University of Delaware, you are you get a degree in theater production. So how mm-hmm. does that kind of shape how you end up owning your own company? Uh, It's interesting when I think about what I got out of college. And I think I was fortunate enough that at the time, the university was partnered uh, with what was called the professional theater training program. And essentially the PTTP was a master's level program. Um, And when you left that program, you basically went and worked on Broadway. Um, I was an undergrad and as an undergrad, we worked basically as the um, the understudies or the uh, the assistants to the people that were in the master's degree program. Um, So the nice thing was the productions that we do, you know, you think about like high score college theater, it's kind of a diversion um, or like a side activity. These were professional Broadway quality shows and the people that were the uh, the administrators and the professors and everything like that, they were people who worked for, you know, very well-known professional theaters. Um, so I learned a lot from going to school there in terms of uh, holding yourself to professional standard, yeah. um, especially in the quality of work that you do. 
you know, I, I can think about little stories, you know, one day I was helping to build a set and I put a piece of plywood the wrong way. Believe it or not, plywood, one side of it has a really nice finish. It's super clean. The other side has a few imperfections and knots and things like that. Yeah. And I was told like, you didn't put that the right way. We have to have it. So the plywood's the right way up and it looks perfectly smooth oh, wow. and clean. Um, but Who knew? You know, I, I could think about all different stories, but I think it was really a fortunate experience that um, everybody that I worked with there, you know, is always push yourself to do better, you know, make sure the quality of work that you're doing is absolutely as best as it can be because um, you want the finished product to look really great. Yeah, no doubt. So now mm -hmm. you're, you're basically as theater production, do they ever make you get in front of the camera or on the stage? Are you always back behind the scenes? I took exactly one acting class and it was a requirement as part of the degree. And I did terrible in it because I have a very bad uh, <laughs> memory in terms of being able to like memorize lines and things like that. Like I, I cannot, if it's a movie that I've seen 50 times, yeah, maybe I can memorize it. But in terms of actually like remembering scripts and things, I am so bad at that. Um, so I did have to do one acting class. I passed it. Uh, it was a struggle. I have mortifying memories of getting up in front of the class and trying to recite lines. But uh, fortunately, after that, it was just hours upon hours of, you know, here's how you design a set. Here's how you work in a shop. Here's how you build things. Here's how you set it all up, focus lights and so forth. That's pretty fascinating. So what's the most complex set that you have had to build? Um, I cannot remember the exact production because at this point that was, you know, well over 10 years ago and it kind of runs together, but sure. I remember cutting pieces of two by four in the shop there. And I think it required like 240 sections of two by four to be cut. Um, we did lighting focuses where I think we hung something like 400 lighting fixtures that all had to be adjusted and pivoted. Um, you know, so I can't really give you one specific production, but I just remember that everything was just huge quantities of everything. Yeah. You know, big sets, lots of lights, lots of, lots of carpentry work, just hours and hours of work that went into the production. That's great. That's mm -hmm. awesome. So you start your business immediately after graduation. So is there a no like ramp up period? You just say, all right, I'm graduating from college. I have a degree. I'm starting a company. Uh, I went down to the stadium at UD, um, went through the whole ceremony, Drove back to my parents' house, got in my pickup truck and did a show that night. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so so there's really no, uh, there's no turnaround time in between. Um, it was a, a slow transition. And I was actually talking to my wife about this. She remembers when we had our first apartment right after I graduated from college that I wasn't very, uh, I wasn't home very much. And that was because I had a job working at the university doing um, audiovisual install work in their maintenance department. And then in the evenings, I had a shop um, across town that I go to and I build speakers and oh, wow. you know, start on my own business. So it was pretty much from the time I'd wake up in the morning until the time I go to bed at night, I was working on building something. And to be honest, there was never a point where things really started. I can think about the first couple of shows or events that I did, but you know, it was like I would do one event a month and then the next month there were two events and then the next month there would be three events and it, it kind of snowballed from there so it got to the point where there was a about a year of a transition time where i was trying to juggle working my full-time job i just graduated school 
Um, and I thought I'll do this, this business as a side thing. And I, I remember the day that I just had to go and turn in my keys at UD and say, like, I can't keep up both of this because my business is taking off. So I really need to, to yeah. focus on that full time. That's amazing. So did you ever, you know, when you were building speakers and stereos back in the day, did you ever think that this was actually going to be a business or, you know, were you, were you centrally focused on starting that business or did it just sort of occur? I think it just sort of occurred. I always, I mean, from the age of like two or three have been interested in electronics and electricity and how everything works. Um, and I knew that I'd be going into some sort of technical field. I wasn't sure if it was going to be, you know, building robots, building rockets, building whatever. Um, yeah. I wanted to be in some form of a technical field. Um, and I think it was just kind of like the culture, um, you know, hanging out with friends that were in bands, learning a little bit about uh, popular music and, you know, talking to them, they played small shows. Um, I had an interest in electronics. Uh, we did a little bit of audiovisual stuff at church. Everything sort of came together and it was like, well, this is something I think that I'm pretty good at and I can probably make a career out of this. So it's great. You know, I'm going to give it a shot. We'll see how this works out. That's awesome. I love it. Um, so, you, you know, being in Delaware, there was a real surge to, to kind of invest in the arts and theater and music and shows in, in the downtown Wilmington area mm -hmm. over the last, let's just say 10 years or so. How sure. were you able to sort of capitalize on that and, and be front and center to help that, that flourish? Uh, there were a couple of things that I think really helped with that. Um, one was linking up with a lot of the people that were just starting uh, to do that. And, you know, downtown Wilmington for the longest time was kind of an area that people stayed away from. And I think yes. people started to realize we have to do something, whether it's successful or not, we have to try and get people to come to downtown Wilmington. So a lot of the festivals and things started to pick up at that point. Uh, the thing that really set us apart was that, we were new enough of a company that around that time, there was a lot of technology change in the way that uh, equipment for the audio industry worked. Um, we transitioned from what were referred to as analog consoles, which are these mammoth things, you know, they weigh 500 plus pounds, and <laughs> take multiple people uh, to a technology, which is a digital audio console, which, you know, was something that one person could pick up and carry themselves. And I was fortunate enough that I got in at a time where I invested in the newer technology, the digital consoles and things like that, that made the ability to do events with quality sound within the constraints of what was going on in Wilmington, um, financially feasible, but also logistically feasible. One of the early accounts that we picked up was the Grand Opera House. and. Yeah. The reason that we got that account, or one of the reasons, uh, one of the gentlemen that worked there recognized the quality of work that we were doing, but it was also, we had a really small mixing console that could do a lot. And he said, this is great. If we have an opening act, um, you can bring this in. It's a lot smaller than what we have, and we don't have to kill as many seats. Ah. So we can you know, bring more audience members in. Um, so I think that was kind of what really sparked things was it was, we we weren't just focused on going on doing the shows or, um, you know, the glamour of rock and roll or things like that. It was really more of how can we do this better? How can we be a little bit more efficient? 
Um, how can we make things sound a little bit better by, you know, trying to stay relevant with the technology that's out there now? So um, I think that's really what what helped us. Yeah, that's pretty interesting um, to be able to kind of look at it and say, hey, we can help this place make more money by having more seats, by reducing our footprint. That that does certainly factor into someone that's trying to sell tickets. Sure. And yeah, Wilmington, is, it still is a tough place to get resources in terms of, you know, having enough crew members and things like that. So in a way, it kind of shaped our business that things had to be lightweight, things had to be efficient, you had to be able to do what would normally be two or three people had to be set up by one. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of worked hand in hand, you know. Wilmington doesn't have a New York City Broadway budget. It doesn't have a Washington, sure. D.C. corporate budget. Yeah. Um, we have to find ways to get the same quality, but make it work with fewer resources. So what's that um, saying? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. That's sort of exactly on full display there. Sure. Yeah. So in 2019, your company does 328 events. That's a mm -hmm. lot. I mean, basically yes, almost every day, you know, I'm not a math guy, but uh, that's pretty close to almost every day. Mm -hmm. So how how crazy was that time? And then we'll kind of lead into after you do 328 events, you have the pandemic. So let's talk about first about how crazy 2019 was and I guess exciting, too. It was. Um, that was the year, you know, <laughs> If you've ever heard the expression, this is why we can't have nice things. Um, <laughs> that, that was the year where I finally felt like we had hit a stride as a business where the business side, you know, from calls coming in, getting handled by people in our office to going out to the shop or people would prep it where I was able to kind of step away, maybe take a vacation every now and then or you know, not worry about so many logistical details. Um, we were starting to really hit a stride where everything was kind of humming along. We um, we were really getting on board with like having a, a, a good business system in place. Um, yep. Always systems and processes, right? Exactly. Barcodes on everything. Orders get entered into the computer. They're tracked from start to finish. You know, we're following up with clients and things like that. Um, I think 2019 was really the year where we just really had started to hit a stride for that. And then you have an awesome 2019. You're probably saying like, okay, this is going to be great. You know, we're, this is the beginning of the, of the, of the launch. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic happens and then basically everything live is shut down. Events are gone. Yeah, exactly. I, I can remember being in the shop and we had a pretty full calendar. We actually have a big calendar it's written out in dry erase marker on the wall and i remember the call starting to come in and it was like hey you know there's this there's this thing we think we're gonna have to cancel our event you know we're not really sure about it just yet so go ahead and you know sorry we're gonna have to cancel and that was i went up with the dry erase thing and just <laughs> i wiped it off the board I'm like okay we still have like four other events this week and then the next phone call came in and i went back and erased another one off the board and then I think within like a couple of days, like all of the phone calls came in and I literally just took that eraser and just wiped out the entire month of March after that. Wow. That's crazy. So, you know, it would <laughs> say what you will about where we were a year ago, but there was certainly a lot of belief of like, okay, a couple of weeks, we'll be back to it. You sure. Know? Yeah. We, we think, oh, we'll, we'll get through this thing. It's not a big deal. We've been through worse. Uh, you know, we'll take this time to, 
to, you know, vacuum the floors and dust a little bit. Right. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's you. I always, you know, I thought that I was going to be working from my house for two weeks and here we are like 17 months later and I'm in my basement right now. You know, it's like, I have an office in my house now, which I didn't before. So, yeah. you know, once you realize that this pandemic is going to be, I don't want to call it permanent, but more of a here to stay as opposed to being sort of uh, gone in two weeks, like we all thought in, initially. Mm-hmm. As a business owner, how anxious do you start to get? I think just the way that my personality is, I don't want to say I was in denial, but I think my coping mechanism is to try and stay busy. Sure. Um, I remember talking with my team and saying, you know, we're going to have this time off. We've got to make the most of it. We've got to come out of this stronger on the other side. You know, like I said, we were kind of rocking and rolling in 2019, but there were still things where I felt like, you know, people could use a little bit more training on some things. Um, Some of our transportation, like our cases and things like that, we could use more of them. Um, Once we started to get a little bit of guidance on how the actual biological mechanisms of COVID worked, um, we started to work on ways that we could kind of stagger people in and out of the office. Sure. Um, I'll come in and work in the evenings. You come in and work in the morning. Um, but we really just wanted to stay busy. Um, I was dead set and determined that, uh, you know, particularly we had just hired two new people. I think we brought a new office manager in, in January and in February, we hired a sales manager. Okay. Um, so we have two new people on board who basically said like, yeah, I'd love to come and work for you. They gave up other jobs that they had and, I felt incredibly committed at that point that I don't want to just hire somebody, have them work here for two months and then <laughs> say good luck. Sorry. You know, yeah. We, yeah. Sorry. So I think the gears just started turning of like, we've got to figure out a way to generate revenue. We have so many avenues of, uh, you know, from being able to build custom projects to being able to do uh broadcast type work, there's got to be something, there's got to be something that we can keep just enough revenue. If we can, if we can hit that mark where we're making just enough to keep the lights on, keep the doors open, keep salaries going. Um, And also in 2019, I kind of got the sense that whatever the next step in our business was going to be, it wasn't going to be a small incremental thing. It was going to be something big. We were going to land a tour that was going to require hundred thousand dollar investment. We were going to need to buy another truck, something like that. So right. I had been putting some money away in the bank, basically in a separate account from our, our uh, regular operations account. Whenever we'd reach a certain threshold, we would transfer any extra profits over to that. Um, and I remember sitting down and looking at that account and doing the math and saying, you know, I can, I can keep people on for a number of months. We can get through this thing. You know, it's going to mean that we aren't necessarily going to be able to make that big purchase, but at least I can keep people employed and keep things moving. So call it dumb luck or whatever you want to, you know, that's planning. That's you're planning, being prudent and planning and doing, you know, for a a business owner, that's not the easiest thing to do uh, Um, to be, to say, we're taking X amount of dollars and sending it to the side, but man, did that pay off for you? It did. Yeah. We were able to keep everybody on board, um, keep everybody working, get people in the shop. So, um, you know, I guess 
in a way, that big investment was it was the human capital um, that yeah. we were able to turn it into. It was it was keeping people here, so we had a foundation and a structure as a business throughout the entire pandemic, which uh, would definitely proved to be a key thing to keeping us going through some of the projects we had coming up. Yeah, you are kidding. And, and you know, <laughs> that investment in, 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 you know, people really paid off and that's something that they'll never forget. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's an election going on and one of the candidates is from Delaware and mm-hmm. they start reaching, they reach out to you for help. So how, how does that even happen? Like, how does that unfold where you're in the middle of the pandemic and all of a sudden you're working on a campaign? It was funny. I think I received an email at like 930 at night. It actually may have been a text message. It was from somebody from another company up in Pennsylvania. And he said, Hey, I've got a friend that's looking for an audio engineer in Wilmington. And in Wilmington, I mean, there's like five audio engineers at most. Right. <laughs> there's not a lot of people. Um, but I, I've i worked with and have business dealings with a lot of, of larger companies, um, people that you know do huge national tours and things like that. I've purchased used equipment from them, gone out to launch, you know, friends in the industry kind of thing. So one of the tour managers for uh, a band happened to end up working on the campaign as a technical consultant and basically reached out to a bunch of people and said, Hey, do you know any audio engineers in Wilmington? And I think he reached out to four different people from these national companies and said, do you know anybody? And they all responded. Yeah. You need to get in contact with Tom Manchester. So that's um, that, that was the thing. I got a text message and it basically said, Hey, uh, my buddy Henry is going to be reaching out to you. Um, They've got a project. I think it's going to take three or four days, but they're looking for somebody in Wilmington are you available? And I'm like, I really have a lot going on here right now. So, so of course, you know, send me over some paperwork. Let me know what equipment I'll be using. Let me know when they need me um, and I'll be available for it. And I got the paperwork and I'm I'm reading it over. And basically it's saying like, we're going to do the studio thing uh, for the Joe Biden's running for president. um, And we want to have a virtual studio that we can do some broadcast and a couple of zoom calls and things like that from. Yeah. Um, I was under the impression it was going to be like a week long project um, and very low key, like, Hey, we'll have everything set up. You just come in and run it a couple hours a day kind of thing. So that was right around uh, the beginning of September. Um, September 10th is when we started. Um, I showed up to the queen theater in downtown Wilmington. And basically there was a tractor trailer backed up and a bunch of cases came off and um, we had uh, one sheet of paper and the piece of paper basically just had a little diagram of all of the pieces of equipment. Um, <laughs> no instructions whatsoever. It was like, we just need to make this work. So I it's really like didn't Legos. know anybody. Yeah, exactly. It, it was just, <laughs> here's all the equipment. Figure Somebody's going to tell you what we need to do. You figure it out. Wow. Um, and, and that we did. That's incredible. So you expect to work for the campaign for three or four days and you're still there. Yeah, we, we worked most of the month of September, getting the theater built out. We hosted a couple of events there. They were campaigning still, going and doing these drive-in events across the country. But they had really decided we want the campaign to be based out of Wilmington, and we need a space that's of professional quality and able to host press because you still want to have press be able to come out to these events. Right. Um, But following the protocols of the time, everything was kind of hosted over Zoom or WebEx or, you know, any of these teleconferencing 
software. So really the idea was just to have a professional space with broadcast capabilities um, that the campaign could come to whenever they needed to and do, you know, a good quality presentation, um, and have all the support and infrastructure, uh, you know, something a little bit more than just holding up an iPhone and trying to do it. So, so that was the idea. And, uh, it was one of those things where like they used it one time, they liked it. Hey, let's make a few tweaks. Yeah. We're going to keep using this. We're going to keep using this. And it was like, every time they told us we were going to use it, we would come back in and build it better, build it better, build it better, add more capability, add the ability to have different cameras in different locations in the building. Some of the project leads on that were were very creative. Uh, I would I would describe them as Hollywood types, where they would say like, "How can we play with the architecture of this building and use this, you know, this brick wall? What does this represent? How can we use this? And how do we light and uh, put microphones in this space to make it work really well for the message that we're we're trying to get out with the campaign." Um, so that continued on and uh, it ended up going all the way through January um, until, you know, they made the move to the White House. Holy crap. That's crazy. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to kind of show my ignorance because I obviously have no idea, you know, what you. So do you build this and then you get it to a point where the campaign can come in and just flip a switch or every time there's going to be a press conference? Do you have does your team have to go down and test everything and make sure everything's OK? It was very much a full-time job. Basically, anytime anything had to happen, um, any we had to be available. Like we were pretty much on call twenty-four-seven, but we had regular working hours. Um, if we weren't in there, um, actually doing an event, uh, we might be doing maintenance on things. Yeah, they, you know, we ran this event before, but it was a little bit clunky to you know change between these different cameras. Let's figure out a way that we can run this cable differently. There was a surprising amount of events, uh, you know, with the campaign, like the first lady would talk to people on the view. So we would be, you know, she would be connecting via zoom or one of our other formats into, you know, a a morning television show. Yeah. Um, so there were like, you know, tons and tons of activities that were always going on within that space. Um, and not even just for the president, uh, first lady, but the vice president, uh, right. Uh, her husband, uh, various staff members, family members, really anybody that needed to have a professional quality studio space that could be connected to the world, you know, in COVID times with, with those precautions. Yeah, that's crazy. So you know, while you're talking, you think you make me think about something. So you've seen some of the virtual award show, Golden Globes, Oscars, and they had major technologically uh, uh, malfunctions, right? <laughs> How, you know, if, I don't know if you saw any of those, but how, how much do you feel for their people, their technology people? Because it can't be easy to have, you know, a virtual award show with people all over the country, right? It is, uh, it is surprisingly difficult because at the end of the day, you're relying on the internet, basically, right. you know, how many, how many times do people struggle with like, I can't get my iPad to connect. Right. Well, imagine if trying to get your iPad connect is trying to get like 14 computers to connect to like, you know, 20 different television studios yeah. across the world. Like the amount of time that it's all takes, live, uh, yeah. all live, like this has to work out of the gate. And not only that, but you always have in the back of your head, like, you're trying to present your candidate in the best light possible. You don't want these, you know, awkward situations to occur. Yeah. Um, but we went to a lot of great effort to make sure things were very redundant. And I think one thing that really helped in my case was the way that I 
over time have developed a workflow with the way that I do things. Um, Every morning, let's say it was an 8 a.m. call time, I would walk in, take my coat off, hang it on the back of my chair. I would uh, turn on my audio console. I would test every single speaker, test every single microphone, every single connection where the press could plug in every day for you know, from September all the way through January, every single day, it was make sure these things work, make sure there's no hum, no buzz, you know, equipment got maintained and cleaned. It was just, you know, you had to do it with the utmost precision and you could not slack on that. You could never have a day where it's like, you know what, it worked yesterday. It'll be fine today. You know, I'm just going to assume it'll be good that, that this computer is going to work you came in and you made sure that at least all the things were as they were when you left the day before. And then that eliminated the possibility of uh, further technical hiccups. Um, or if there were hiccups, at least you were only dealing with one thing. You weren't dealing with a, with a major crisis. Yeah. So you're, you're definitely a process and system systems and process guy through and through, huh? Yeah, very much so. Your workflows. Uh, yeah. I love it. That's great. Uh-huh. That's the only way you can scale, you know, um, go, going back to, you know, the middle of the pandemic where you start working for the campaign. Do you think that that happened at, you know, like a, a, a the perfect time, a time where the company really needed it? Or were you like content to sort of keep riding it out and just hope things got, get better? I can say that we could have maintained the company without the campaign. Yeah. It would have gotten ugly. Right. You know? probably people would have to have gotten let go. Um, there would be a lot more taking of loans and, you know, mortgaging my house four times over to, you know, just try and keep things going. Yeah. Um, the campaign, like, I don't want to lead anybody to believe that it was like this huge money tree or anything for us, but it was just enough work coming in for us that it was able to keep us in a position where, after the, the pandemic was over and events started to return and everything, we were at least in the position that we were just prior to the, uh, the pandemic starting. It, yeah. wasn't like, it wasn't like we were trying to rebuy trucks and rehire people and get new equipment. We were able to at least stay in a, a state of equilibrium throughout the entire thing, um, which, you know, when things opened back up for us, it was like hit the ground running. Yeah. And uh, I, I can't imagine having to bootstrapped everything without um, having that continuous work that we had going on. Yeah. It's almost like any, so at that point, any source of steady revenue is good is a good thing, you know, to be able to, t- to keep you afloat until you know, things open up back up and you get to quote unquote normal again. Sure. Yeah. Um, so everybody has an Uncle Joe story in Delaware, right? <laughs> everybody that lives in Delaware has a story about how they saw Joe Biden eating ice cream in Rehoboth or whatever. Right. You have a favorite story from your interactions with him. Um, I will just say, you know, I, I've, I've interacted with a lot of people who are musicians and politicians and, um, you know, all sorts of really well-known people. Uh, I will say, regardless of, you know, political affiliation or things like that, Sure. Um, I was very impressed with Vice President Harris and also uh, Joe Biden, how warm they were to the crew. You know, there's a lot of times where people are very, you know, kind of lost in their thing. They're worried about the uh, the election. They're worried about numbers and things like that. 
But every day, uh, Vice President Harris or President, Vice President elect at the time, I guess, she would yeah. walk through the theater. She'd wave to us, say, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, when Joe was around, you know, he would stop and talk to us. Uh, he'd tell stories about when he was at the queen as a, as a youth <laughs> and like, you know, all the shenanigans that were always going sure. on there. That's um, great. It, it, it was nice to see that they were very just normal down to earth people. Um, because I think you think the president, you almost think like a, a king or like royalty or something like that, right. but to realize like, Hey, this is a guy that lives like five miles up the road from me. Like, it feels like somebody that you can really easily connect with. Yeah. Um, so it, it was really nice. The moments, you know, obviously they have very busy schedules, but they would always stop to connect and talk to people, um, technicians. And it, it just felt like, Hey, we're here to talk to you. We're here to, you know, we appreciate being part of your team. I will say the, the other story from the whole uh, campaign that I think will stick with me forever was uh, the day of the January 6th when the Capitol got stormed. Yeah. Um, we were supposed to be hosting an event that day, um, I think, to talk about financial policy or something like that. Right. And Biden arrives at the theater. Uh, he's back in his briefing room and we're kind of waiting. And then the next thing you know, like people's phones start to buzz and we're looking at our monitors that have a uh, a grid of, you know, all the various news stations and things all of a sudden, like, you know, one news station pops up and they're showing live from the Capitol. So it must have been at least an hour and a half uh, that he was back. You know, it's, it's normally like he'll get there, be in the briefing room for 10 minutes, come out and do his thing on stage. I think he was back there for an hour and a half. The press, everybody was on their phones, everybody's typing on laptops. We had to hand out bottles of water to everybody because it was like, this is taking way longer than it should have. Yeah. But we're all just sitting there watching these events uh, play out on TV. And I just remember sitting in my station, you know, I'm down on the main floor of the theater, stage is directly in front of me. And he walks out on stage and it is just dead silent in there. And as I'm sitting there and he starts to speak, I look over and we have a monitor that has four different news stations. I think it was uh, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, and one other one. And all of a sudden, they all just flash. Um, oh, man. They flash up and it's live from the Queen in Wilmington, Delaware. And at that moment, the only thing I could think is, I really need to get this right because like, <laughs> this is something in a hundred years, like whatever the, whatever the version of YouTube is in a hundred years, like somebody is going to be watching a documentary about what happened at the Capitol or the events of 2020. And what I do now will be part of that history. So um, that's I, such I think, a great point. Uh, I think of all the things I ever did, like I will remember that day forever because it was just like, literally the world just stopped and everybody was focused on this little theater at 500 North market street in Wilmington. You know, it, it suddenly became the center of the world. And to realize that my hand was on the button for everybody to be able to hear that and literally going out to millions and millions of people, it, it felt like a really, really big moment for me. Holy crap. That's, that is such a great point. And it makes a ton of sense, you know, mm -hmm. He worst case scenario, his microphone doesn't work or something crazy were to happen in the most pivotal point of, of such a huge, you're right, moment in history. That's kind of that's kind of crazy to think about it that way. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. 
Um, so now you sort of live in DC during the week. Is that right? Uh, I was in DC from January through, let's see, I was there for four months. So January, February, March, I, we finished up at the end of April and into May. Um, basically, uh, the campaign and the folks down there decided, you know, we really like this format of what we're doing at the queen. So we'd like to move it down to the white house. Um, so they literally transplanted everything kind of from one location to the other, um, to give the white house the ability to, to host events of this style. Yeah. And they brought us all along with them. Um, I was there basically Monday through Friday, but we'd come home a little bit on the weekends. Um, and, essentially doing the same thing that we did back in September, but we were doing it all over again, where we were going to this new space. We had a little bit of the equipment that we had, we used previously at the queen, but we're designing from the ground up a new system to be able to do this sort of stuff. And, uh, at that point also get people trained as well. Yeah. Um, so, so much of my time there for the four months from January, um, through May was uh, going through the whole training process and getting uh, folks down there in DC up to speed. Yeah. So you're gone to say five days a week for four months. How, how, how's the wife take that? Like how, <laughs> how does he handle that? Cause that can't be easy on her. Um, I know it was probably difficult. It was difficult for me. I mean, I really missed being home a lot of, you know, time spent on FaceTime Sure. I have a three-year-old daughter. Oh, man. Um, so yeah. that, that kind of hit a little bit hard because, you know, she's like starting to develop relationships and, you know, talking more and things like that. So those are all moments you want to be a part of. Um, yeah, four, four months for a three-year-old, there a lot can change. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I just made it my priority um, that, you know, Friday when we were done for the week, I would get in my car, I'd come home and basically the phone would be turned off. I would not You'd be all worry, in. you know, yeah. it's everything. I'm there for family time. If I had something that had to be taken care of at the shop, I wait till everybody would go to bed, come over here, work on it until two o'clock in the morning and then come home and, you know, try and be dad the next day, all day, Saturday, and not, not worry about other things. So yeah. that was a big priority for me. No, it's good to hear. I, and I think that I, I commend you for that. Cause I think it's really difficult with phones and laptops and iPads and whatever to stay completely connected and present wherever you are. It's really difficult to be present at work, you know, with family stuff going on and more importantly, vice versa, vice versa. It's sometimes really difficult to be present with your family when there's work stuff going on. So I, that, sure. I commend you for, for doing that. If you look at all of the events, you kind of take the, the election and the whole campaign out of it. Is there one event that you look back on and you go, this is by far my favorite event or performer that you worked with? That's a good question. I, I cannot really think of one in particular. I will say to that point, though, to the layperson, I think when you go and see a band yeah. and you see that there is a sound person there, a sound guy, sound girl, and they're mixing that band for an hour, you think that that's the job. But in reality, this is a 50, 60 hour a week job of working on uh, trucks, figuring out how you're going to get people to locations, uh, fixing equipment that's broken, procuring right. equipment. Yeah. You're getting things across the country uh, <laughs> overnight. You're, you're, you're hopping in a car and driving to pick up something really obscure that you need to make a show happen. It's really a logistics and a technology company 
that you just happen to have these slivers of moments where you have a little bit of a connection with artistic creation and things like that. So I can't really name one instance where I've, you know, really thought that, that something was amazing, but I would only make the point that it is like kind of a, a nice reprieve in the chaos, so to speak. Sure. When you have those moments that you've done your due diligence to get all the equipment to the location, you worked really hard to make loading go smoothly. You had all the equipment that the artist was looking for, have a really smooth sound check. Everybody's super happy and they settle in and do a great performance. Like that, you know, for 60 hours in the week, you get a 45 minute reward and it, it always feels worth it. That's awesome. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, this is great, Tom. I, I really appreciate your time. You, uh, um, this is a super interesting. I would definitely would have never thought that you would have talked about having a hand in the, in a key moment in, in American history, which is incredibly fascinating to me. So that, that's a pretty awesome story. Yeah, no, I mean, it's something that obviously I, I hope to keep doing uh, that type of work. I really enjoyed it. The people were great to work with, um, both on the technical side of things and, you know, on on the staff side of things. I enjoyed working in that environment where everybody is very goal focused, um, kind of pushing each other to make sure, you know, you're doing everything on point. But, you know, certainly I consider that an honor of a lifetime, even if I don't ever get to do it again. But yeah. Um, I think we've definitely, you know, showed that a little company from Delaware can can handle something of this scale. So I hope it means big things for us in the future. That's awesome. Well, mm-hmm. I wish you best of luck. And I, again, appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, absolutely. If, Thank you. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Tom and, and his company, go to electrosoundsystems.com. Um, to learn more about how our firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. To hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. And if you want to connect with me on the Untapped app, my username is brcarney7. And it's time for me to give a rating to Conehead from uh, Zero Gravity Beer. I'm going to give it a, man, it's fine. I'll give it like a <laughs> two and a half out of five. It's fine. I'll drink it again for sure. But, there you go. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Tom. I really appreciate it. And cheers to you. Best of luck to you. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, Follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC.